If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnhem. And me, William Durimple. <sighs> You had a little rest and put your feet up and had a cup of tea and a biscuit. That was quite the romp, wasn't it? With your mate, your twin, <laughs> Barnaby. It was. Barnaby! I love Barnaby. I mean, my goodness, it had everything. Um, I'm still exhausted. Uh, but look, what we were talking about with our last two podcasts, you've got a twofer because we're spoiling you Two for one. It was the, the Venetian-led Holy League. I never tire of saying the Holy League. <laughs> it's conglomerate. Of- <laughs> I went to Catholic school. And I spent my life escaping things called the Holy League. The Holy League used to organise sort of pilgrimages and and catechisms and things. I'm very pleased not to have more Holy Leagues in my life. I have to say. But anyway, do you need a hug? <laughs> I'm all right. Are you, are you all right? I, I need a crusade. Are you sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we were talking about the Holy League, which, uh, apart from uh, William's checkered childhood, also <laughs> talks about this confederation of countries that loathed each other <laughs> until. Uh, the Ottomans start to take territory which matters, and particularly threatening Venice. Um, so we ended with the Battle of Lepanto, this enormous sea battle, this bloody sea battle which turned the waters red. The greatest sea battle in Mediterranean history, and also apparently the last great sea battle to involve galleys. Yes. So you've had these long succession of sea battles all the way from sort of Actium and, you know, the Argonauts and all this sort of ancient history. And, and it ends with Lepanto. It's quite a moment. The whole thing was just, I mean, do go back and listen. If you haven't listened, it really, really even if naval battles you don't think are your thing, they are your thing. Because <laughs> they weren't <laughs> my thing. You don't know yet. <laughs> but they are my thing now. Anyway, look, it wasn't just a victory in Italy which, you know, actually really, really, truly believed it was under some existential threat that the Ottomans were at their door. I mean, they were. They were in Croatia. So they were literally, they were sort of Dubrovnik. That was the border. And, and you know, another four days march and they'd be in Venice. Yeah. Well, what, what, well, the question that I asked Barnaby at the end, because we were talking about, you know, that this was a turning point, if not for the fortunes of the Ottomans. It, it sometimes is described as such. But as you quite rightly said, if the decline takes 400 years, not really that much of a decline. Not much of a decline. But you know, what Barnaby was saying, Barnaby Rogerson, our, our guest for the last two episodes, was that this was a turning point because it gave Europe, in particular Italy, and Spain, this idea of muscularity, that, you know, they had confidence, that they hadn't had confidence before because they could win a battle against the Ottomans. Yeah, and it's, it's if you just imagine sitting in Europe and ever since the 14th century, the Ottomans have been advancing mm. slowly and inexorably, first of all, from the interior to the coast of Anatolia, from the coast of Anatolia into the Balkans. Then they take Istanbul and they continue moving onwards. And this is the first time you've got a major, major defeat. And what I wanted to know was, you know, 
how did this play out in England here? You know, where, where, you know, I am sitting and William sometimes sits for part of the year. And in England, I mean, let, let's just zone in on this because it was greeted with joy as if, you know, perhaps England had won something, you know, <laughs> no, they're not involved at all, not involved, not one whit, but there were bonfires, sermons of thanks, the bells of St. Martin in the fields peeled out, uh, all celebrating what was known as the overthrow of the Turk. And at this point in history, it's worth reminding ourselves that there's, you know, there's completely no comparison between the power of the Ottomans and that of tiny little England. Despite Lepanto, the Ottoman Empire is still the most powerful force in all Eurasia, and Constantinople is the Mediterranean's greatest port. From behind the sublime port, which is the you know the symbol of uh, of Ottoman government, like sort of ten Downing Street's door is the symbol of of British government, the Sultan and his various viziers are ruling this fantastic, great, glittering patchwork of peoples and languages and religions, an empire comparable to Rome. Uh, whose last capital it had seized as its own. And decisions made in Ottoman Constantinople affect not a few people here and there, but millions across the globe. And and it's I mean, worth reminding people as well, William, um, in the midst of all of this, that this is an unusual empire because it doesn't require people to change or convert. It's like, you know, you, you do you <laughs> seems to be the Ottoman <laughs> motto. You do you, but just, you know, you obey us and you can pay us taxes. That would be lovely. But it is uh, marginalised people from around Europe who find themselves in the Ottoman Empire because they can just practice their faiths. So Jews who are thrown out of Spain, um, they find themselves coming to the Ottomans and saying, can we live here? Um, and the Ottomans say yes. You see them rising through the ranks. We talked about this possible conspiracy theory that the arsenal of Venice was blown up by a secret agent who was either related to or working for a great Jewish statesman within the Ottoman Empire. It has a slight whiff of uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, that one. I, I, I'm not convinced at all by that. Maybe uh, you're right. I mean, yeah, no, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But the, the fact that you did have a man who had that much power who was Jewish and was able to practice and be Jewish. And it's certainly not unlikely that the Ottomans would want to start an enormous bonfire in the middle of the, the arsenal. It's, it's a perfectly reasonable thing that, to imagine Ottoman agents wanting to do. And certainly you've got the sensation that, you know, from, well, we talked about last time about the vizier, the grand vizier, Mehmet Sokolu Pasha. And he's sitting in his palace on the Bosphorus at the same time uh, as this is all going on, as, as Lepanto is being fought, he's simultaneously planning canals between the Don and the Volga and the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. One day he's sending armaments to Sumatra to thwart the Portuguese, and the next he's choosing a new king of Poland to thwart the Russians. I mean, that's nuts, but just give us an idea of scale. You know, you say from the Don to the Volga. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, way. it's a long way. This it's is not, no paucity of ambition. Yeah. And even more so, even though we mentioned this last time, he's also arming rebels in Andalusia, the last Morisco, the last Muslims who haven't quite converted to Christianity or uh, converted to Christianity, but secretly are still Muslims. They're given arms by this guy. At the same time, he's also sending these muskets, which, of which the Ottomans produce very good muskets, arquebuses, to the rebels in Aceh, so uh, in Indonesia, the completely other side of the world, beyond the, beyond the Malacca Straits, so they can fight the Portuguese. And he's ordering pictures and clocks from Venice. He's decorating Istanbul with one of the most beautiful mosques ever built. And he commissions an 11-arched bridge over the River Drina. So this is sort of global. This is you know what Washington does today, putting its fingers in one pie and then putting its fingers in another. This is the, 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 the 16th century equivalent. And at the center of it is Istanbul, which we've talked about in several of the podcasts, which no other city in Europe is comparable in size or grandeur or even straight strangeness. There's a wonderful book by Philip Mansell called Constantinople. He talks about the different ambassadors in Constantinople squabbling over the number of kaftans they're presented by by the Sultan. The oh, French generally receive twenty one, the British get sixteen, and the Dutch twelve. So is that is that the equivalent <laughs> of the gun salute that we talked about in the Raj? Exactly. exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Exactly. And this is also, I mean, if you've got a place like Constantinople, which is this melting, bubbling pot or Istanbul as it now is. This is the, the, the attraction for ambassadors, yes, but also spies. It must be quite livid with intrigue, is it not? Absolutely. And just the same way, there's this rumour that the Ottomans are responsible for the fire and the arsenal in Venice. So there are reports that 
<laughs> that the Venetians try, how many times is it? 14 times, I think, to poison Mehmet the Conqueror. And then there's this other, these other sort of strange, uh, weird Ottoman etiquettes at the palace. The passage of the season is marked by a strict sequence of different fur pelts, ermine in autumn. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you. Okay, so hang on, where are we now? We're in spring. What's the spring collection? <laughs> Squirrel. Squirrel. <laughs> Squirrel. Oh. Squirrels okay. for right. spring. Uh-huh. And Summer? then sable in midwinter. Sable. All right. And ermine for where? Okay. Look, we're, we're talking about all these beautiful things. And ermine and you know furs and the beautiful moss that we create the, the ugly side is there as well i mean slavery slave bizarre i know i keep banging on about this no with reason because it's a big slave culture and and many many wars are fought in every single war there are prisoners of war we talked to the last episode of uh, cervantes no less uh, who who is at this point at the end of the last episode is enslaved as a galley slave before he's ransomed. And you told me about another author. I mean, go on. I, I just blew my mind when you told me about. Go on. You go and tell everybody. Tell everybody what you told me about Pushkin. Yes, Pushkin, Pushkin's great grandfather uh, was a slave. Was for sale. That's extraordinary. It's, I think it's a very important thing. I think in a future series we're going to do the history of slavery, uh, which is such an important part of history. And it's something which, of course, the Europeans industrialized and, and increased the scale of on a dramatic stage. But it has this long prehistory. And the, uh, a country like, well, a city like Algiers, a quarter of the population were slaves. This is just astonishing. A quarter of the population were slaves captured in war. And, and, and a lot of those were from Western Europe, many from Britain. A lot of Cornish. Now that you've brought us on to Britain, let's talk about Britain, shall we? Because the 16th and 17th century here in merry old England, uh, England was small. It was agricultural. It was, I think it's fair to say, relatively impoverished, monolingual, as opposed to the Ottoman Empire, where every sort of language is, is spoken, and of such little economic importance. So I think I mentioned this the last time we met, William, that despite again and again saying to the Sultan, you know, we'd love one of your ambassadors and be, <laughs> be, be so welcome. <laughs> It'd be lovely to have them. They just never bothered to send anyone. Neither, neither did the Persians actually bother to send anybody to England because they find it completely irrelevant. So it's, it's here it is, England. And not just irrelevant, but, but also sort of powerless. Between yeah. 1609 and 1616, so what's that? That is... You're doing maths seven, now. Seven <laughs> Don't seven, how long did that long take day. you to work It's a long day. That's hilarious. <laughs> we found your Achilles <laughs> digit. That's terrible. Seven years, William. Seven weeks. Seven, seven years. years. Yeah. Mm. 466 <laughs> English ships in the Mediterranean are attacked by Ottoman galleys. Mm. And by the night and, and the 1620s, the Turkish naval presence is now spreading so far, it has reached the waters of the British Isles. Can you believe it? In autumn 1625, the Turks take out from the church in Mounts Bay in Cornwall 60 men, women and children and carry them away as captives. Just a minute. Just stop. So what? They're, they're getting slaves from Britain. Cornwall. So they're just raiding and picking up people <laughs> from Cornwall. And in June 1670, a petition is presented to the king on behalf of, quote, 140 men of Stepney who've been captured by the Ottoman Navy. So, they're, I mean, they're all over. It's not just Western Britain. Does that mean that they came to East London? They came up the Thames and they came to East London. They went to Stepney and just and grabbed... took away 140 men. So, the, I mean, one of the reasons, and again, if you've missed some of the um, other podcasts we've done, is that they would take people and ransom them and say, so if you want them back, uh, you just have to pay us. Or just take them as galley slaves if no one, if no one ransoms them. Yeah. Anyway, look, there were, I think, um, this is an eye-watering number, some 5,000... Well, more than 5,000 British captives in Algiers. And Algiers, that you gave us that crackers figure of what, 40% of Al Al Algiers was Algiers is, made up of slaves. Is, is slaves. And there's a further 1,500 Brits captive along the coast at the port of Sally. Just this idea of them coming up to Stepney and helping themselves. I think that's nuts. And, you know, we ha we, I think we have from our failed education system, which doesn't teach you any of this, this idea that sort of Britain is always this sort of vaguely powerful nation. We are, we are absolutely not in the, in the 16th century. We are victim of slaving raids from, from, from Algiers. I mean, it's well, it's, I mean you, you know, you're brought up on rural Britannia, Britannia ruled the waves. And, and really, Britain didn't, the Ottomans ruled the waves all the way up to the Thames. That's, uh, I did not know. Yeah. But what interesting, one of the things that begins to change this 
and which turns the British into allies of the Ottomans in the next century is the Reformation. The Reformation cuts off Britain from the continent, not unfamiliar situation today. And, and the Europeans are sort of baffled by the way we've, we, we've turned ourselves into a pariah nation, but we've lost all our links with Italy, with Spain, with Portugal, the Jesuits being sent from Italy are being hung, drawn, and quartered on arrival. The Elizabethan Secret Service under Walsingham is, is tracking these Jesuits down in their priest holes, in these little recusant dens in the north of England. And this is one of the things that drives the British into trading with further afield. So this is the beginning of this period when you're getting the the British venturing out not just to the Mediterranean, but to Moscow, and as we know from our first series, particularly to the East Indies and then to India with the East India Company. And one of the things that is a kind of great British invention at this period, which changes everything, is this simple idea of a joint stock company. Same thing we were talking about with the East India Company, where rather than a guild where a series of professional allies and collaborators can pool their resources and work together, or a, a family company, you get with a joint stock company, something that anyone can invest in. So you can be a, a wine seller, you can be a carpenter, you can be a, a wool salesman, but you can invest in this company and make a share of the profit. And in the Elizabethan period, from the 1580s onwards, from the end, from, the, from that sort of period, you get the Muscovy Company, then you get the Barbary Company, then you get the Levant Company, you get the Royal Africa Company, which was an early slaving organization. And before the East India Company, but exactly the same set of investors, you get the Levant Company. It's originally called the Turkey Company, and then it changed its name to Levant. But same set of investors. So, so when you talked about the East India Company, and you did it so beautifully and so vividly, go back if you haven't heard that episode, it's great. Uh, but you had Customer Smythe, famously known, the hilariously named Customer Smythe. I still find that quite funny. So Customer Smythe is... is He's involved? He's in this? Specifically, it's Customer wow. Smythe. He's one of the founders of the Levant Company too, uh, and a major investor. And when you look at the names, because I know you went through the names and, you know, as you say, sort of saddle maker and you know, somebody who, you know, blows glass or whatever, they, they, you, you can correlate names between lists. And they even share the same offices initially. Right. So, and the Levant Company is first. It's originally called the Turkey Company, then it becomes the Levant Company, but it's basically the same group of London merchants. And what's interesting to us, of course, with retrospect, is that the Levant Company, which starts off as the bigger of the two and is a far more immediate source of trade because at this point, bizarrely, you know, we don't think of currants as being a big part of the British <laughs> diet, but currants in a time before um, sugar is widely available and easily available, currants is a, is a, a sweetener. Currants, as in raisins. I mean, as we're doing about shrivel yeah. grape things. So yes, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. And the Brits buy large quantities of these and, t- and Tudor stews contain lots of currants. This is one of the weird things. There's a wonderful book called The Raj at Table, which makes the point that when the British first arrive in India, chilies haven't got to India. Uh, and in actual fact, British and Indian food is not so incredibly dissimilar to each other because both of them have, have fruit stews and, and both of them don't have chilies yet because they haven't arrived from South America. Gosh. So, the, so, so the, the kind of food that Tudors would have had when they stepped ashore at Surat would not have been, in a sense, as different as, as, as the food now between India and Britain. You don't know how, this, how, how much this will outrage my mother. I mean, she'll just be, she won't believe it. You can say it as many times as you know, but she will refuse. Can I just say, there is a half-formed joke in my head uh, about currency, but I don't know how to form it properly. Just, just imagine I threw Work it on in. that one. Work on it. Uh, anyway, look, so much of the contact between Britain and the Ottoman Empire, peaceful, but also, it sounds like, from what you're saying, profitable as well. And so you've got the, the, the English Levant Company, we should say the date, actually, 1581, we're talking about through a charter from Queen Elizabeth I. And now that brings this relationship, which might have been sort of ad hoc before, into a formalized process. That's right. And they soon established factories at Constantinople, Smyrna, which is the modern Izmir on, on the Anatolian coast, and particularly Aleppo. Uh, which is a huge company factory. And if you think of which Shakespeare player is it? He's he, he to Aleppo gone. Is that Macbeth? Shall I go to the Bodleian? Go to the Bodleian. <laughs> is it Macbeth? Is it? Is it Macbeth Williams? As I said a minute ago, yes, it's Macbeth. <laughs> As of course, anyway. every, every fool knows it's Macbeth. It's Macbeth, uh, of course yes. it's Macbeth, yeah. Sorry, what were we talking about? Yes, Aleppo. So they've got, they've got offices so, in Aleppo as well. Uh-huh. So they've got a, a factory in Aleppo. And 
The trade is currants, as we said, silk yeah. fabrics, and yeah, more currants, the brown gold of their day. Yeah. Can I tell you can I tell you a silk story? So the Barbary Company and the Muscovy Company were before the Levant Company, is that right? Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah, the 15, uh, 1570s, 1580s, and then Levant Company's 1581, I think. Okay, you're gonna, you're gonna, you are going to like this story then. So this is the story of a man called Anthony Jenkinson. Have you heard of Anthony Jenkinson from Norfolk? No, go So for Anthony it. Jenkinson from Norfolk, this is in 1553. So this is re- uh, earlier, you know, than, than we're talking about. He's on a tour of the Middle East. He's actually, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get to the Persians because he's a silk trader. That's what he does. That's his job. And he's desperately trying to get to the Persians to try and make a deal, but nobody cares about England and he can't get anywhere near it. And it just so happens that Suleiman is going in a procession through the city. And this man, Anthony Jenkinson from Norfolk, jumps, pretty much jumps in front of him. It is in Aleppo. That's why it made me think of it. It's in Aleppo. And he sort of jumps in front and says, look, I'm a silk trader. Can you look wonderful? And he's while he's sort of waiting for the, the actual sultan to arrive, he's looking at all the Janissaries' clothes and saying, well, that's much silk. That's wool. That's it. We can do this. you know." And he mm-hmm. starts to say, look, actually, I can do business here. And he's, you know, when we said that before the Levant Company, the ad hoc deals, he is the first man to do a deal with the Ottomans and say, you know what? I'll take some of your silk, and ah. we can have we can get it into England. Isn't that interesting. It's very interesting. And so the Brits like Ottoman silks. They like Ottoman spices, which have come via India up through Egypt, and they like indigo. But they particularly like, as we said, currents. Currents. <laughs> yes, currency. See, it's gonna it's gonna come out and fully formed in a minute. But look, there's another reason apart from trade, which which pulls these two countries together. And you know, as you said, you know, sort of England isolated from Europe. My enemy's enemy is my friend. They are both despised by the Pope. That's, you know, I think Elizabeth, has she been excommunicated at this time? She has, hasn't she? She has been. And what's interesting is it works the other way too. The Ottomans like the sound of the British Mm. because they know they're not idolaters. Right. What they don't like is all the idols in Italian churches, all those gorgeous paintings and iconostases and things all over Byzantium. Uh, What they want are these bare white mosques. Uh, and an English parish church in 1650 is not actually so different from that. You've, you've knocked down all the statues. The English Reformation has cleared out all the images. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that both sides realize that they have in common. Do you know what? Do you know that letter I sort of started reading to you um, in the in the last episode, the one where the, the Queen of England was claiming to be also the Queen of France? Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is Elizabeth. Uh, so, but it's, the, the rest of that, actually, you'll find really interesting. That same letter where she's writing it to Murad III in 1579. So she says, you know, I am, you know, the Queen of England, France, and Ireland, the most invincible, the most mighty defender of the Christian faith against all kind of idolatries. So right right up front and center, you know, we are of the same cloth. The most mighty defender of the Christian faith against all kind of idolatries. Exactly. Yeah. And so we don't think of, we, you know, it's, it wouldn't occur to anyone today that Protestantism and Islam uh, are, are on the same on the same team. But this is very much something that both the British and the Ottomans play with each other so that they can make common cause against common enemies like the Spanish and the Portuguese. And when the Spanish Armada is defeated and blown around by the gale, the Ottomans are thrilled. And there's an Ottoman chronicler that talks about how Sultana Isabel, which is what they call the Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, isn't that gorgeous? Has been uh, saved from invasion by a Rihan Sarasan, a sharp wind, mm. um, just like the one sent against the people of Ad in the Quran. And this is wow. taken as a sure sign that Allah, that God was on their side. Uh, and when news of her good fortune broke, there was rejoicing at the Chronicler's Court in Marrakesh and fireworks too. So you have this growing relationship with the Ottomans, but also particularly, I think, with the Maghrebi courts, mm-hmm. linking Elizabethan England and 16th century Marrakesh, something, again, you would never find in a, in a textbook. So that's, that's fascinating. And that, that link that you're, you're describing, that actually does result in joint military expeditions, doesn't it? Joint military expedition in 1596, Anglo-Moroccan attack on Cadiz, on the Spanish. Yeah, that's extraordinary. <laughs> so let's team up against Philip in Spain because we and hate him. And even weirder, in 1603, which is only seven years later, Ahmed al-Mansur, the King of Morocco, makes a proposal to his English ally, Queen Elizabeth I, that England allows the Moors to colonize North America. Stop it. 
no, this is actually this is this just is, stop is it. Me. Really? And he says that they should use English ships. They should together attack the Spanish colonies in America, expel their hated Spanish enemies, and then this is the key quote: possess the land and keep it under our joint dominion forever. Uh, there was a catch, however, and that is, <laughs> he says that the king um, should ensure that future colonists should be Moroccan rather than English, quote, in respect of the great heat of the climate, where those of your country do not find themselves fit to endure the extremity <laughs> of the earth there. And our men endure it very well by reason uh, that hurt that heat hurts them not. Oh, so the idea wonderful. is that the lily-livered English are not going to be able to manage the heat of America. You'll get sunburn. So this predates mad dogs and Englishmen go out <laughs> every day. So they don't know, do they? They don't know. They have no idea what's but going on. But this is the serious offer. And again, this, you know, something so different from our preconceptions. You have the idea of a, a joint Moroccan Elizabethan colonizing mission in North America to take on the Spanish. So, the, I mean, the Turks love Elizabeth. The Turks, by and large, love England. And, and you know, now that they've noticed it, because they've been <laughs> ignoring it for <laughs> centuries, but they've no, now they've noticed it. But one, one thing they're very, very rude about is the cooking. They don't Not like Not a food. great surprise, you could say, despite the currents. What do they say? So, <laughs> what, do they, what do they say about the cooking? <laughs> this all emerges from the story of one unfortunate English captive um, who's captured in a sea battle, exactly the sort of thing like Lepanto that we've been talking about. Uh, and he's 1648, he's taken to Algiers where he's put to work as a cook for the ruler. And this proves a mistake for everyone involved. <laughs> Unused to such exotic fish and meats of the region, the Englishman found himself producing, and this is a quote from the time, mad sauces and such strange ragout that every one took me to be a cook of the Antipodes. <laughs> <laughs> Worse was the reaction of his master. He declares mm. that the food hath the most la loathsome taste <laughs> and ordered that the cook should be given 10 bastinados, which is, which is whipping on the soles of his feet, and returned oh. to the slave market. As far as the English are concerned, the English it seems made better galley slaves than gourmets. Yeah. Listen, um, it's a good time to take a break here. Join us after the break where we explore more matters of taste <laughs> and also this burgeoning friendship or relationship at least between Britain and the Ottoman Empire and how it all revolves around this uh, Levant company. Join us then. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger and an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome back. So let's talk about the Levant Company now. So it was a Trading organization, sure, there's financial benefits, sure, They're right at the highest levels, there is a relationship that is growing between Elizabeth and Murad III. So these, these at the very highest level, they have this link, we're not Catholics, they hate us and we don't care because we like each other. And we're going to go and colonize Florida together. Yes, and that was just a nuts thing, I had no idea. But, but also, this now allows people to travel. So for the first time, there's somewhere to go. How does that work? So you have Turkish ex-prisoners. Moorish craftsmen, according to one source. A number of wealthy Turkish merchants and a Moorish solicitor, no less, setting themselves up in London. As well as an Albion Blackamoor. What is the Albion Blackamoor and Turkish rope dancer? What, what's that about? These, again, are, are, are old Moroccans washed up in Elizabethan London. We, we, again, have this image in our head of you know all those films like Robert Bolt, Man for All Seasons and everything. It's all a very solidly white cast. But if you actually look at the Elizabethan documents, you've got an extraordinary rich variety of people that are turning up, some slaves, some begging around the the city, uh, some rich ambassadors with, with trains of servants that uh, create a huge 
sensation in Shakespeare in London. Yeah, and you're right because you know if <laughs> this sort of these rows that uh, creep up from time to time about casting, you know, you can't have black characters in this time period. Well, I mean, they were they were there. There's a very, very good book about this, Black Tudors by Miranda Kaufman. Have you come across it? It's wonderful. I've seen it in bookshops. I've never read it. No, it's a really good book. There's also, though, a book I have read, which is by my Palestinian historian friend, Nabil Matar, who we should get on the show sometime. And I remember walking past a bookshop in London about 20 years ago and seeing his book, Islam in Britain. And then he had two dates, I can't remember, 1580 to, to 1600. And there's a whole book on, on the Muslims in Britain at that period, which it is a period you, you don't imagine there are Muslims in Britain. Then he follows up with another book with the unlikely title of Turks, Moors and Englishmen. Right. They, they don't call the Levant Company um, or people who work for the Levant Company Levant Company traders. No, they don't give them that sort of honorific. They're called Turkey merchants at this time. <laughs> is, is that meant to be sort of disparaging or is that just a name that more if, if it is disparaging, it's not a disparagement that lasts long because these guys become very rich very quickly. And from very modest beginnings in the 1580s, the Levant Company takes off far quicker than the East India Company initially. It makes a lot of money. Uh, and you have a lot of Brits setting up in these factories. Aleppo and Constantinople are probably the biggest, but Smyrna, there's another big base in the Peloponnese uh, at where the current trade is centered. So you've got increasing number of Brits finding new lives for themselves in Ottoman dominions. And with the fact that the, the Ottomans recognize these people as almost Muslims, that Protestants uh, don't have this, uh, this idolatry, which is the, the, the main... Muslim problem theologically with the Catholics means that these guys are welcomed. The, the Turkey merchants, there was a beautiful quote um, that I'd love to read to you. So this is about, you know, they are kind of like the wide boys of the city at the time. You know, they're the ones who are dressing <laughs> in the finest merchants. clothes. So, you know, it's not pinstripes, but they've got the finest silks and the finest walls. And they're, you know, they're strutting around the Royal Exchange in London. And uh, this is one of the contemporary reports at the time. One would think the world was converted into newsmongers and intelligences. Uh, what news from Skanderoon and Aleppo, says the Turkey merchant? What price Bears currents in Zant, apes in Tunis, cutting a throat in Naples, whores in Venice, and the curse of the clap at Padua. <laughs> so they're not popular. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, but, but this sort of sensation that Britain is opening up, that this country, which had been this very small place on the edge of the world, is now becoming for the first time this sort of globalised cosmopolitan country. And that you can make money. I mean, the, the boys are back in town. There's very much the whiff of, you know, God, these guys are strutting around um, thinking they own the place. And at the same time that you've got all these unlikely Tudor Moors wandering around London, you've got increasing number of Brits finding weird lives for themselves in the Ottoman Empire. Oh, and quite a lot those. of these are British slaves who've converted to Islam and risen in the rank. There's a famous moment when there's, they're trying to ransom some prisoners from Great Yarmouth, which was then a bigger, a bigger port than it is now. Right. And they go to this Ottoman vizier who's called Hassan Aga. And they find that he too is from Great Yarmouth, that the, that the, <laughs> that the actual vizier uh, had formerly been called Samson Rowley. And a similar moment in Algeria where the Moorish king's executioner turns out to be a former butcher from Exeter, uh, now called Abdusalam. But Abdusalam, because it's based on his actual name was Absalom. That's right, isn't it? His name, his name in England was Absalom. And then he became Absalom. Yeah, that's right. And it isn't just English. The Scots are there too. Uh, there's a... <laughs> There's a Ottoman general called English Mustafa, who is in fact a Scottish Campbell, uh, who converted to Islam and joined the Janissaries. Right. Uh, and what you find increasingly in the 17th century is that these converts will not come home because they're having a better time in the Ottoman Empire. So they're not converted by the sword? Some of them are converted by the sword. Some of them okay. go over. But for whatever reason, they won't come back. Right. Uh, and. And it, this happens even to British diplomats. There's a guy, Hassan Aga, the, the former Samson Rowley, was got on a slaving raid. But then you get characters like the English consul in Egypt, ben, uh, Benjamin Bishop, who's a British diplomat, and he probably converts and, and disappears from the public records and joins the Ottoman elite. Do you know what, what, what Brits thought about people like him? I mean, does he disappear from the records because they just don't want to talk about him anymore because they don't like it? Or do they tolerate it? What, what is the idea of Brits? The not, of course, not at all happy about this. And, and I talked in the last episode how Archbishop Lord actually designs a service of reconversion 
So you've got a sufficient number of people who've converted to Islam and then come back again for whatever reason that they actually need a formal sacrament of, of reconversion to Christianity. And there's a lot of rude stuff there's a, in, in Elizabethan and Jacobean plays about renegades, people who have, in, in the language of the time, Mohammedized or donned the, turs, donned the turban or turned Turk. Yeah, you, you mentioned Samson Rowley um, and you mentioned you know, his kidnap from, from Great Yarmouth. Did you, I mean, did you know that he was also castrated? He was castrated and he turns into <laughs> one of the most powerful eunuchs in the Ottoman realm. And there's a picture of him in a, in a manuscript in the Bodleian. And they used to sell, I first heard about this guy, I remember as a teenager, because they used to sell postcards of him, of this guy with a turban from Great Yarmouth. Yes, yeah, so it's Great Yarmouth. Can you imagine the Great Yarmouth accent as well? So, but you've got the, so this man from Great Yarmouth, he's castrated, which is dreadful. But then he rises up through the Ottoman ranks. He ends up running the treasury of Algiers, all Algiers. And as you say, you know, he is offered by the English ambassador the chance to come back and be an Englishman again. And he says, he turns around and goes, why would I want to do that? I would just be another person in Great Yarmouth struggling, chipping away at a living because he's not, he's not grand. He's not, a, he's not blue-blooded. He hasn't got money behind him. But here in the Ottoman Empire, he's managed to rise up and is pretty much running Algiers. There's a whole mission that goes to Algiers under Charles II. They send somebody called Captain Hamilton to ransom Englishmen they've heard have been enslaved on the Barbary coast. And they all refused to return. The men had converted to Islam and were now, according to the report of Captain Hamilton, quote, partaking of the prosperous success of the Turks. They are tempted to forsake God for the love of Turkish women, writes Hamilton. Such ladies are, he added, generally very beautiful. Oh, right. Okay. So that's, that's Captain Hamilton put in his place. I mean, just some of the attitudes of this at the time. So Sir Thomas Shirley, remind us who Sir Thomas Shirley is. He's quite important at this time. He's an ambassador to the port. So he's one of the formal British British ambassadors. To but he talks about this, what does he say? He describes as rogues and the scum of people, which being villainous and atheists are fled to the Turks for succour and relief. So there you are. That, I've answered my own question there. I should have, I should have really read on and looked at the, <laughs> that because, uh, yes, scum of the earth. So they're, they're really not, um, not admired. So some of these people are people who are looking for a better life or have been kidnapped and are making the best of a situation. But you've also got some really terrible people who are fleeing justice, who are washing up. In, in the Turkish realm, aren't you? But there's this consistent anxiety you find in British diplomats whose job it is to, to try and bring these people back, that they're just not going to come back. And Thomas Shirley again says, this is, a, this is a quote from his diaries, he says that the more time Englishmen spend in the East, the closer they move to adopting the m manners of the Muslims. And this is what he writes, conversation with infidels doth much corrupt. Many wild youths of all nations, as well English as others, in every three years they stay in Turkey, they lose one article of their faith. So this idea that this is, this is not just a, a dangerous and exotic civilization, it's a very seductive one, and that people who go to Turkey and the Ottoman Empire and work there uh, are actually going to be seduced by the, the pleasures uh, and, and the life and the riches of this civilization. In terms of trade... So this is now building up over the time. So the Levant Company, how quickly does it grow? Because we know the East India Company just grows very, very fast and is very fortuitous by, by a number of sometimes, you know, luck, dumb luck helps the East India Company. How does the Levant Company grow? So what's interesting is that the Levant Company does very well, particularly in the 17th century, when the East India Company is still struggling. The East India Company in its early days has a lot of competition from the Dutch, and the Dutch are doing much better than the English with the spice trade. And in the end, the, the Brits have to kind of go back to square one and, and replan the whole thing, uh, that they're not going to be spice traders. They're not going to focus on Indonesia. What they're actually going to do is they're going to be textile traders, which was always the strong British trade. The English wool trade had been the, uh, the staple throughout the Middle Ages. They're going to concentrate on textiles, in this, in this case, cottons and silks, and it's going to be Bengal and Gujarat not Indonesia and spices. But meanwhile, in, 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 in the Levant, 17th century is the early 17th century is the peak of the trade. And when the, the East India Company is struggling at the beginning, the Levant Company is making a lot of money in Aleppo and Smyrna. And what, again, I think it's very important to remember that I think it's very easy to imagine Brits abroad with the hindsight of the, of the Raj and, uh, and the high empire and imagine as these high and mighty people. These guys are marginal. 
they're putting up with a lot of insults in the streets in the Levant. They're, you know, they they stand out a mile. They don't look like the Ottomans, but they're there because it's the rich country. It's the richest empire on earth, along with the Mughals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they're there to make money. So if they're picked on, if they're picked on, in, you know, <laughs> I thought it's a terrible playground term, but if they're not, you know, they're teased or they're traduced on the streets of, let's say, Aleppo, how do they live? I mean, what do they do? Do they form their own little expat colonies? Well, exactly. I mean, it's rather like, in a sense, modern Saudi Arabia, where, you know, kind of all the oil workers w- will have their British club and, and sit in their British bar doing their their British things. And in the Aleppo factories, you have you have early descriptions of cricket being played. Cricket spelt K-R-I-C-K-E-T-T. Wow. And there is the Aleppo factors early on have a pack of foxhounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they go off doing the doing the hunt. Well, they must have had the foxhounds sent over. Poor foxhounds. <laughs> they just sort of shipped over. Really. But also there's this description of these early factories is rather sort of uh, you know collegiate places rather like an oxbridge college and the english factors have to take a vow to avoid the indulgences of quotes fornication and matrimony uh, as well as vow not to indulge in cards dice tables taverns and playhouses and this contrasts with the venetian consul who at the same time is sitting in the same uh, in the same city and who lives till 114 and fathers no less than 126 children, 105 wow. of whom are illegitimate. Wow. <laughs> so you have all these celibate Brits sitting there. Francesco Lupizzoli. Are we talking Francesco Lupizzoli? The most Lupizzoli. fecund man in the whole of Europe. <laughs> That's outrageous. But my favourite story, and the guy that I very nearly wrote a book about, and actually may well write a book about. And there's a wonderful book, which I recommend to anyone, no longer in print, but you can get it in libraries, uh, by a guy called Daniel Goffman, who's a young scholar who'd wrote three books. And then I think he had a heart attack hmm. uh, in his 40s. But his, the book that I loved is called Britons and the Ottoman Empire. And it's got these dates, 1642 to 1660. And he homes in on this character. And, and this guy is someone I would so like to write a biography of. If ever I leave India and if ever I have a, a, another life, I think to go to the Peloponnese where he was based and to research this life is, 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 is my, probably my biggest ambition. Okay, you're torturing me. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? So he's called Sir Henry Hyde, the same family that Hyde Park is named ah, after. Right. And he is a, a, a big royalist at a period when the Civil War is looming. And with both the East India Company and the Levant Company, these are full of city men who are basically absolute, straightforward parliamentarians, roundheads. And both the East India Company and the Levant Company is overwhelmingly, when the Civil War breaks out, uh, heading to support Cromwell. But Henry Hyde is not. He is a royalist through and through. And by the time the Civil War breaks out, he has got three different jobs. He started off with, I mean, he runs them simultaneously. He starts off and his main source of income is the Levant Company. And he is the Levant Company agent in the Peloponnese, not a bad mm-hmm. place to, to be based. And we, we've mentioned it several times, the current trade, raisins, yes. dried fruits. This is what he's in charge of. And, and, it, and it's shipped out of the same place we were talking about in the last, in the last podcast about Lepanto. It's out of that Corinthian gulf that, that the raisins get sent off to Tudor England. But Henry Hyde also has another job. Uh, he's paid very well as a spy for the Venetians. And we were talking about all this this uh, backwards and forwards. The Venetians tried to poison the Ottoman Empire. 14 times. 14 times. They, they're terrible at it. They they're tried not 14. It. No, they're not And the Ottomans yeah. may be successfully burning down the arsenal of the Venetians. Yeah. So in the middle of all this, Henry Hyde is sending secret uh, reports to Venice about the trade, politics, but also the military arrangements of the Ottomans. But with the money he gets for spying for Venice and the uh, East India Company, he then realizes that the Ottoman Empire is sufficiently flexible that he can actually buy himself into the empire. And he bids successfully to become the voivod or the batardelik, as the the Turks call it, which is basically a, a consular position. He becomes the consul of the Ottomans for the Peloponnese. So as well as being the agent of the Levant Company, he's actually now part of the Ottoman administration. And they give him a whole regiment of judiciaries. What? He has so he has to, oh like like a Pasha. He's like a Pasha. He he's is a, himself, not like a Pasha, he is a Pasha. He is a Pasha. He wow. is a Pasha. So you have someone who's a cousin of Hyde of Hyde Park, yeah. who's who is 
an Englishman. He, he's still a Christian. He hasn't gone over to Islam. He has a chapel in his estate, which is increasingly now a, a, a large and, uh, and rambling and ever-increasing sort of feudal uh, slice of the Peloponnese. Very nice. And he, through the 1630s and 1640s, just as the Civil War uh, is breaking out, he successfully entrenches himself in his own little fiefdom way west of Patras, uh, fending off all the attempts by the Levant Company to withdraw him. Right. <laughs> and they're, they're saying, come back, Hyde. They're saying, come back, Hyde. You know, <laughs> we, don't, we know what you sort, you royalists over yeah. there. And eventually he does get expelled. They, they force him out. They send this guy called Sir Thomas Bendish. Who's the they? Who fought? Who, who fought the Levant who Company. Fought, so the Levant Company, but they can, they can pull him out of that territory? They, they initially find it very difficult. And when Thomas Bendish comes out to, to replace him, yeah. Hyde sends his janissaries after him. So there's a lot of scuff. But eventually he finds it impossible to continue. And he does go back and he fights in the Civil War. And then, of course, Charles I is executed. He's on the losing side. Charles II goes over to Paris and Hyde goes with him and then is sent by the future Charles II in the interregnum to Istanbul again as his ambassador. So this guy who had first of all worked for the Levant Company, become a Venetian spy, then works for uh, the Ottomans themselves as a pasha, is sent back to, to uh, Constantinople, to the court, to the top Capi Palace, as Charles II's would-be ambassador, where, of course, he instantly clashes with his enemy, Thomas Bendish. And there's this long struggle between these two men. Bendish, who's backed by the Levant Company with all its resources, mm. and uh, poor old Hyde, who had the resources, but is now on the losing side and on his own, yeah. And on his own. Yeah. And it all has a very sad ending. He ends up having to take refuge on a French ship in Smyrna Harbour, where there is eventually a sort of SAS-style raid on the ship. And Hyde is snatched from the French ship, kidnapped, yeah. wow. taken back to London, and put in the Tower of London, put on trial for treason. It's an extraordinary life. It's a one. There's letters and everything. I'm longing to write this. So you sh you've got to write it. You've got to write it. But okay, you've you've just left it. There was a trial. He's found guilty. Is he is he done away with? He's found guilty, and he is beheaded. Oh, he's um, beheaded. We mentioned the the place where he's beheaded earlier in in the podcast. Oh, the old exchange in Cornhill on the fourth of March, sixteen fifty. It is it is an extraordinary story. You've got to write it. You've got to write it. I have questions. Can I ask you a question? Go on. Go on. I'm no expert on this. I mean, this is this is stuff that I would love to know more about. But you are you are an expert on the East India Company. There's there's nobody I know um, who knows more about the East Thank India you. Company than you. No, not at all. But but if you've got the same characters, you've got the same trajectories. You've got actually a fairer wind behind the Levant Company. You know, they haven't got the problems initially that the, the East India Company has. Why does it not grow uh, in the same way? And why doesn't it not turn to empire building like the East India Company does? This is, is the key point. And it's basically, of course, just power. The Mughal Empire grows very, very quickly. We have Shah Jahan building the Taj Mahal, but then Aurangzeb takes over and the whole thing falls apart. Partly it's his bigotry. Uh, he, he alienates. Uh, the, the Mughal Empire was always an alliance between the, particularly the Hindu Rajputs and the incoming Mughals from Central Asia. And as long as the Rajputs and the Hindus are doing okay out of this deal, the thing survives. But when Aurangzeb starts destroying mosques, uh, and it also combines with a major economic crisis, there's not enough land to give out to new recruits and so on, and there's a lot of, of rural uprisings. I mean, it's, the story of the collapse of the Mughal Empire is, is, is a fantastically complicated and, and fascinating story, which we can deal with on this podcast in the future. But basically, the whole thing falls apart. The Marathas rise up. Uh, they start off on the West Coast in these hill forts, but they then break out. They're soon in Surat. They're burning sure. down uh, Mughal garrisons. And then Nadir Shah comes. We talked about this earlier. And the whole of India fractures into yeah. a million pieces. And that's the moment that the, that the East India Company, when India is not a huge unitary state, but right. a fractured series of city-states, that's when the East India Company has its moments in India. But that never happens in the Ottoman Empire. Right, right. So they don't, they don't fragment, so there's not the space. So although we have this idea of Ottoman decline going on for 300 years, which is, of course, such a, a, a ridiculous concept, uh, that after Lepanto, it's all downhill the way, actually, the Ottoman Empire keeps its integrity. And as late as you know, Gallipoli, the Ottomans are very successfully keeping British attempts to 
find a way into the Ottoman Empire at bay. And as we all know, it's Sula Bay and uh, the, the British are sent packing. Churchill's first great disaster at Gallipoli, many years in advance of what we're talking. But the, 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 the Levant Company never has the opportunity to penetrate the Ottoman system. You can buy yourself into it like Henry Hyde did and collaborate with it like Samson Rowley, Hassanaga, the eunuch, or Henry Hyde. But, you, but because it doesn't fall, because it remains strong and it's militarily able to defy Europe, also because the British support the Ottomans because they don't want the Russians there and they don't want the French there. So it becomes British policy in the 19th century to keep the Ottomans in power, whatever. And the, the, better to have a, a, a weak Ottoman Empire than to have the Russians controlling the Bosphorus, as we know today, from, from the, the Bosphorus is the key to all Russian exports. Exactly. Ironically, it's actually the East India Company that deals the death blow to the Levant Company, although they'd started off as sister enterprises. And in fact, the, the, the East India Company was the little brother of the Levant Company. Because after the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt, when Napoleon lands in Alexandria, defeats the, the local Ottoman army, and has this plan to go down the Red Sea and join up with Tipu Sultan in India. That's wrecked when Nelson finds the uh, French fleet in Abukir Bay, and there's this first great victory of Nelson. But after that, what's fascinating is that the East India Company does the same plan in reverse. It sends its sepoys up to Egypt, and you get these Indian sepoys crossing from, from what's now Suez up to Egypt and defeating the French army that's been dumped by Napoleon, left in Egypt. Napoleon's gone back to France, and these poor French people are stuck in the desert in Egypt, and they're defeated by Indian sepoys. And after that, the Levant Company kind of sinks into financial impotence and becomes a sort of, it's just replaced by the East India Company. The East India Company is now so powerful that it's not only taken over all of India, but it's also taken over the Levant Company's territory in Egypt. So the East India Company gobbles up not just the Mughals, but ultimately the Levant Company. Listen, this is so, so fascinating. Um, I'm so grateful, again, to you and your wealth of knowledge. I have an itch I need to scratch. Can I tell you about it? Can <laughs> tell we... me about your itch. <laughs> Can I tell you what it is? I, I, this, this whole relationship between Elizabeth and the Ottoman court, I just need to know, I want to know more about it. Because I find, you know, apart from like the tantalizing letter where, you know, I just, I, I read bits of it over two pods now. I think it's so interesting. But there is a really serious relationship going on. So I want to know more about that. I also want to know, you know, the missing figures and all this. We've done a lot of blamming and blasting and slicing and dicing on ships. And I want to know what's happened to, where are the women? I mean, you know, we, we sort of only get to hear about them as passive. They've got to be more than that. They've got to be characters. And you know how obsessed I am with finding women in history. Well, we know who to, we, we know well. who Can to we get, get her in. on? Can we get her on the phone? Should we get her on the phone? So we're talking about Bethany Hughes. Bethany Hughes, we're after you. We're on your case. We'd like you on because this, this cannot be that they're just you know, cement or background scenery. I want to know more about those. I went to a wonderful festival in the Peloponnese, very near where Henry Hyde was based this October. I was speaking at the Cardamilly Festival. Last October. Yeah, the year has moved on. You <laughs> have to October. get with the Last time. Yeah. Uh, and I heard Bethany on Ottoman women there, and particularly this extraordinary relationship between various Ottoman sultanas and Elizabeth and these letters which pass between the two. So let's get Bethany in, in on that next. And I might be able to get her to talk a bit more because I'm also obsessed with Roxolana now. So if you've been listening to the podcast, you know how fascinating she is. Listen, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, next week, hopefully, fingers crossed, Bethany, and we've got all sorts of wonders in store for you in this podcast because we've, <laughs> we've been going through, well, largely William's address book and we've pulled out some stuff. <laughs> donkers for you for the rest of the series so do join us again uh that's it from me anita arnon and me william durimple <laughs>